Well, let's turn together to the uh, book of Romans, Romans chapter 5. I just love that hymn that we just sang, especially the verse 3, through toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation and peace forevermore, till with the vision glorious her longing eyes are blessed, and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. We're going to talk today about just that, the first line of that uh, verse, the tumult of our war. And what we do as we wait the consummation. And we'll talk about the vision glorious with which our longing eyes will be blessed when he returns. And why we will be victorious through this one who through it all, as we began by singing, is our foundation. I've titled this message, The Saving Life of Christ. It's all because of him. And it's Romans 5 starting in verse five. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given us. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps the good man someone would dare even to die for. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. You know, in some ways, speaking of war, the war in Afghanistan reminds me of the war in uh, Bosnia way back in 1995. Any of you remember that quagmire? It was very different, but also very similar. On one level, it's almost ironic. We were defending the Muslims back then, and all the Serbs were our sworn enemies. And at all costs, you did not want to fall into their hands because they were ruthless. You may remember Scott O'Grady. He was the American pilot who was shot down in Bosnia and then miraculously rescued after this harrowing six-day, uh, you know, cat and mouse game, not trying to be, uh, trying not to be found by the Serbs. We're going to see today that in a lot of ways, what he went through is a parable of our lives and a powerful illustration of our passage for today. And so we'll take a different approach today. We'll weave his story into what this passage says about our story to bring to life this teaching about the saving life of Christ through war and tribulation. Time Magazine devoted a cover story to his story with O'Grady's picture on the front, and he was standing at attention with these tears streaming down his cheeks. So grateful was he for being rescued. They called it a pilot's story. So perfectly was the mission executed, the article began, that it amazed even the men responsible. At 2.08 a.m. Central European time on June 8th, Air Force Captain Scott O'Grady was sitting as he had for six days, cold, hungry, hunted, and alone in the hills of a strange country. Then he made contact with the, the, a U.S. plane. 
By 7.30, he was on board the USS Kearsarge, a missing soldier now safely back among his comrades. All the tremendous resources available to the U.S. military, from spy satellites to the Marines, had been marshaled for the purpose of rescuing this one man, Scott O'Grady. And they had been deployed with flawless coordination. No one was hurt. Nothing went wrong. O'Grady and the men who saved him are genuine heroes. In one moment, the rescue pierced the frustrations of the Bosnian conflict, where clear-cut successes, decisive actions, brilliant displays of military heroism have all been in short supply. In Bosnia, on most days, there is only murk, brutality, and death. Ever felt that way yourself? We all, grew th- we all go through times when our lives feel pretty murky, when life can be pretty brutal. And clear-cut successes sometimes feel like they're in short supply. But if, while we were enemies, Romans 5.10 The key verse in our passage for today, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We'll see just how much we share in common with the Pilate story. We're going to see that if he loved us, and this kind of sums it up, if he loved us while we were enemies, if he saved us by his death, how much more will he save us by his life now that we're his friends? He died for you. And now that he's alive again, he'll get you through. And soon you'll be holding your head high with the proven character of a veteran. Last time we looked at this promise, God's promise to those who've been justified by faith. And that is that you'll end up with deeper character, which is the glory of God, the proven character of a veteran. It was the promise, if you remember, of transformation through tribulation that we found back in verse 3, where Paul says, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. That is the hope of of sharing in God's glory, which is this, uh, and our character is the substance of His glory. That is, more and more, you'll experience in this life the greatest hope of the afterlife. Increasingly, you'll have the character, which is the very substance of the glory. Uh, that we hope for. Right now, it gives you more and more uh, of a healthy glow as you grow, but someday that character is going to be like a blinding flash because in a moment, as Paul says, we'll we'll be changed as we go to be with him. In the twinkling of an eye, we'll be changed, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, and all that character will flash forever. Death will be swallowed up with victory and will shine in glory. It's like we sang, the treasures of life's trials form within me as I go. With the end of my heart's testing, with your likeness, I will wake. And it happens through tribulation, which brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character and proven character hope. 
Last time we saw that life here below can be like this, you know, foxhole experience of many tribulations. Sometimes it's a desperate attempt to escape the enemy from behind enemy lines, this unending battle in uh, the unfriendly territory that we find ourselves in. We saw that that's how God turns us from You know, the wimps that we all were when we signed on into seasoned uh, veterans in all our glory, which is the promise, the glory of God. This week, we're going to have a look at the power through which the promise will be fulfilled. The power through which the promise is guaranteed. The saving life of Christ. Because of whom, moving on now in verse 5, it's a hope that will not disappoint. It will not disappoint. This is the last verse of last week's passage and the first verse of this week's passage because Paul has kind of fluid transitions. And we need to unpack it to really understand the saving life of Christ. And in particular, this one word, and that is the word Disappoint that tees up the next verses. It sets the tone for the whole passage. It's the word Paul uses, again, to tee it up. It's the Greek word that the New American Standard and the NIV translate disappoint. It shows up 13 times in the New Testament, and every other place that it shows up is translated not disappoint, but put to shame. It's kataishuno in the Greek, and it means yes to disappoint in general, but in particular to disappoint by shaming or disgracing. That's the better translation. It's shame, which is how the English Standard Version translates it. This hope does not, will not put us to shame. A loose paraphrase would be, no matter what you may be thinking about yourself right now, no matter what anyone else may be thinking, this hope is not going to leave you hanging your head in shame. Paul's making a direct reference to a very common Old Testament idea here. Again and again, you'll find them saying things like this, do not let me be ashamed of my hope. Remember that, Psalm 119, 154? And you think, what would it mean to be ashamed of our hope? Well, disappointment is usually a private thing. Shame is always a public thing. You can be disappointed, you know, in the privacy of your own heart. But you can be shamed only in front of other people. And not only is it a public thing, it's a a term. It is a, a warfare term. Psalm 25 is typical. Unto you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be ashamed. And what does that mean? Do not let my enemies exalt over me. Look upon my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with a violent hatred. Guard my soul and deliver me. Do not let me be ashamed. That's probably what Scott O'Grady was praying. So when Paul says at the beginning of our passage for today that this hope will not disappoint, he sets the context of like military victory or defeat. The better translation is that it will not leave us ashamed, like our nation could be shamed, say, in Afghanistan. Like like if things turn south on us as Christians, we could be publicly shamed, like many want us to be. That could very well happen to us in the near term. Like, we would have been shamed had we not rescued Scott O'Grady. 
had that attempt failed. Or maybe more to the point, like Scott O'Grady would have been put to shame had the mission failed and had the Serbs, you know, led him away in defeat and disgrace with his head hanging low and the ruins of the helicopter uh, smoldering behind him. That's happened to us as a nation. That's shame, which is always mixed with inexpressible pain. Again, we're unpacking this key word before we move on in the passage, that in the battle, we have a hope that will not leave us kataishuno in the Greek, shamed, that no one who's a soldier in the army of God will end up in permanent defeat or disgrace. So we don't have to fight like we're cornered animals. That no Christian will ever be led away from a smoldering life in the hands of the enemy. No matter what happens to our nation. Ever wonder about that? Maybe your children have been led astray by the enemy, or so it seems, and you're feeling a kind of shame. Because everyone knows about it. Maybe you become a spectacle to your friends in one way or another, or at work, or even in your family, and you feel shame because you're a Christian, because that's what they feel about you. Maybe Satan's waging a battle for your very soul, and you have no idea what the outcome will be, or so it feels. Maybe you've got a scarlet letter, or you had way back when, painted on your back because of something horrible that you did, and people knew about it. Or maybe for you it's pornography, or homosexuality or alcohol or drugs or a prison record. Maybe it's a marital struggle that people know about. Maybe it's psychological or financial and you're hanging your head because you can't even provide for your family. And you're holding on by your fingernails and you're wondering whether it's worth it. Maybe your family's ridiculing you because you're a Christian. And for them, it's such a stupid, shameful thing or your employer or your friend. Your pain may be your fault. You may have brought at least some of it on yourself behind enemy lines. You may carry part of the blame, and you need to confess it if you do. But as a Christian, you never need to be afraid of permanent defeat or disgrace because no matter what they're saying about you, no matter what you may be uh, feeling about yourself, however misunderstood you may be, however much you may deserve what you're getting, someday he's going to deliver you from it all. And it's a hope that will not leave you in shame. In fact, it might not seem like it, but, but he's doing it right now. Because, again, if he loved us while we were enemies, if he saved us by his death, how much more will he save us by his life now that we're his friends? He died for you. And now that he's alive again, he'll get you through. And soon you'll be holding your head high with the proven character of a seasoned veteran. Maybe you've been very determined and very gutsy to have evaded the enemy as long as you have like Scott O'Grady. Let's weave his story back into this. The area was heavy populated, heavily populated, said the Time Magazine article, with Bosnian Serbs. O'Grady was learning that as he laid concealed at the outset of what would turn into a harrowing six-day game of hide-and-seek. 
As he landed in a grassy clearing, he wasted no time. In seconds, he had shed his parachute and was dashing toward a small clump of bushes. There, he quickly dug his face into the dirt and covered his ears with his green gloves so that no bear skin would be visible. Barely in time, within four minutes, Serbs had swarmed over the area in a furious effort to find him. When the Serbs' first search missed him, sometimes passing as close to three to five feet from him, O'Grady hugged the earth and remained frozen. For the most part, my face was in the dirt, he said. Ever feel that way? And I was just praying. I was just praying they wouldn't see or hear me. At times, his Serb uh, pursuers approached, beating the ground with their rifles in an effort to flush him out. On one occasion, he lay motionless as a cow bruised on blades, browsed on blades of grass between his legs. O'Grady was a believer, and his story is a parable of what God does all through our lives and of what he will do at the end of our life as we're going to see. And when he comes again, he said, I was just praying. Maybe he was praying unto you, O Lord. I lift up my soul. Oh, my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exalt over me. Look upon my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with violent hatred. Guard my soul and deliver me. Do not let me be ashamed. The downed flyer had soon consumed the eight four-ounce packs of water in his emergency kit, but he was able to catch rain in Ziploc bags and at one point tried to squeeze water out of his wet woolen socks after walking through the dewy grass. He found sustenance by eating leaves, grass, and nuts, but not many of the latter, or uh, grass and ants, but not many of the latter. They're hard to catch, he reported afterwards said Admiral Leighton Smith, Nathan Suller, Southern commander, he maintained his cool. He's very smart, he's very determined, and very gutsy to have evaded for so long as he did using the equipment that he had. And many of you, too, have been very wise and very determined and very gutsy over a long period of time to have evaded the enemy for as long as you have, to have bounced back as many times as you have, to have done as well as you have, given what you're up against, given how long you've been up against it, given the cards you may have been dealt, maybe from an early age. And I'm here to tell you today, and I have it on good authority, that though it may be, you know, as they say, three steps forward, two steps backward, your perseverance will pay off big time. You will not end up ashamed. No Christian will be led away from a smoldering life in the hands of the enemy. No, it'll be victory. Because perseverance brings about proven character and proven character hope and hope, the very substance of glory, a hope that will not be ashamed. And how can we know that this is true for sure? How does he make good on his promise? Well, he tells us in verse five, the hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given us. He's saying this. 
He's saying it's sure to happen because the Holy Spirit has been given to you to get you through. So it will not disappoint. God's love will carry you through and keep you true. He's working in you to do for you what you can't do for yourself through a love that's been poured out in your heart that will change you, actually save you from the inside out. He's saying God's love will win. Like we sang, his love wins the battles I could not have fought. Jesus is Lord of all. And it's a love that will never give up as we see in verses six to 10. Let's let them sink in. For if while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good one, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, shall we be saved from the wrath of God through him? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled through, to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we will be saved. And this is a general term here, not just from his wrath, but from everything else that would keep us from heaven. How much more shall we now be saved by his life? that is within us. He's saying this. For the third and final time, let me say it. If he loved us while we were enemies, if he saved us by his death, how much more will he save us by his life now that we're his friends? He died for you. And now that he's alive, he'll get you through and you'll soon be holding your head high with the proven character of a veteran. It's all summed up in the last phrase, the key phrase of this passage. How much more shall we be saved by his life? Now, wait a minute, you might be thinking. I thought we were all saved when we became Christians. I thought we were saved once for all. Is he saying we can fall out of our salvation? No, no. Paul's alluding here, as many of you know, to the three stages of our salvation, or maybe, maybe better, of God's rescue mission, where he saved us, he rescued us from the penalty of sin, the wrath of God when we became Christians, and now that we are Christians, he increasingly rescues us, not just from the penalty, but from the power of sin, and at the end of our lives, he'll rescue us from the very presence of sin in heaven. And Paul's main point is that if he saved us from the penalty of sin while we were enemies, how much more will he save us from the power of sin and even the very presence of sin and of all our enemies all around us, all the sinful stuff that comes against us now that we're his friends? How much more will he do that when a whole armada of heaven will come in his final rescue mission? That's ultimately what it refers to. And in the meantime, through it all, through the murk and the muck, you know, and the mire and the mud, through hell and high water, though it be three steps forward, two steps back, he'll get you through by the power of his spirit in you because of his love for you. 
Now, when the rubber meets the road, what that means is this. When it comes to this promise, the hope of glory, our part is the perseverance, like it says in verses three and four, as we saw last week. We just keep on keeping on. But his part is the power to persevere, the power that's within us, like it says in verses five to 10. God guarantees it that if we're truly Christians, we will persevere. It's the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, the great Reformation doctrine, the perseverance that comes through his work and ours. Like Paul says in Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's our part as we persevere. For God is at work, what? Within you, through the Holy Spirit that's been poured out in you, to will and to work for his good pleasure. So in Colossians 1.29, he says, For this I exert all my strength, toiling and struggling. In, uh, that, that's our part, and it sure feels like that, but in active reliance on his spirit who works mightily within me. This is unpacking what Paul says in Romans 5. It's like it says in 2 Samuel 23. It was a retrospective of David's mighty men that came at the end of David's life, and one of those men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo. Now, I wouldn't envy that name, but I would envy his position. It says he was one of the three mighty men, and it talks about what he did. He arose and struck the Philistines until his hand was weary and clung to the sword. Isn't that what it feels like? But then it says this, but the Lord brought about a great victory. There it is. Your hand may be weary right now to the point that it's clinging to the sword or even dropping the sword. You're doing your part, but through it all, God is doing his part to win the victory. He's doing it right now. If you're anything like me, sometimes I feel like I'm doing a whole lot more than my fair share, that he's not even there. Yet if we only knew what life would be like with all that he's doing, without all that he's done, and without knowing about all that he will do as our hope, if we only knew that the Lord of hosts is bringing about a great victory. Scott O'Grady persevered through those six long days. He did his part with all his heart. He wasted no time taking the parachute, the Ziploc plastic bags, squeezing his socks and all the part and all the rest, just like some of you are doing or have done. Your part is essential. O'Grady's part is, was essential. But he could never have done it without the trainers and all their equipping and without his rescuers and all their, you know, equipment. His part was indispensable, but without the others, it would have been completely futile. And so with us, we persevere in our tribulations. We hang on for dear life but there's someone else who's working too without whom we might as well give up. And who will come again, who's coming soon to make good on his promise. And someday it's gonna happen to us just like it happened to this young American Air Force pilot when a whole armada showed up. The Marines boarded a pair of enormous CH-53 Super Stallion helicopters. 16-ton, seven-blade monsters. 
escorting the stallions were two Marine Super Cobra helicopter gunships, bristling with missiles, cannon, and machine guns, and a pair of single-pilot Marine Harrier jump jets. These six aircraft were backed up by identical sets of replacement helicopters and jump jets, as well as two Navy Prowler electronic warfare planes, two Marine Hornets to provide air cover, and a pair of tank-killing A-Force A-10 Warthogs. The entire aerial armada of roughly 40 planes was choreographed from above by a NATO AWACS radar plane. At 6.35, the Super Stallions approached the area where Grady's uh, uh, radio beacon had been traced. The pilots saw bright yellow smoke coming from the trees, trees near a rocky pasture. O'Grady had set off a flare. The first stallion touched down. Some 20 Marines scrambled out to set up a security perimeter. In the front seat, sitting between two pilots, Colonel Martin Brent peered through the cockpit and saw, to his astonishment, a young man running toward him with a pistol. The man was 50 or 60 yards away, coming up a little rise between some pine trees. The fog was fairly dense, and at first Brent was not sure who it was, but I quickly figured it had to be him. The helicopter's side door had been open for all of three seconds when O'Grady tumbled across its threshold. I'll never forget the look on his face as he was running toward our aircraft, said Burnt. The Marines who had formed the protective perimeter reboarded, and after a quick head count, the super stallions took off. They had been on the ground no more than seven minutes. Their VIP passenger was strapped into a seat by Angel Castro Jr., a 45-year-old sergeant major who had spent more than half his life in the Marines. I sat him down, Castro recalled in a thick bronc accent, and he said, thank you, thank you, thank you. He just kept saying that. Castro gave him a pair of gloves and ordered two young Marines to flank him with their bodies to keep him as warm as possible. One of those Marines was Paul Bruce of Lebanon, Maine. When he first got into the helicopter, said Bruce, he was weeping and sobbing. It was more than just a tear or two. His chest was heaving. He was so grateful and so happy to be rescued. And so it'll be with us. Just like it shows on the cover of Time magazine. They wouldn't give me permission to show it up on the screen, but I did get a picture of it. So it will be with us. Someday, they called it the pilot story. You see that there? Someday, the pilot story will be our story. Someday, you'll be looking like him on the cover of Time magazine, your face aglow, tears streaming down your cheeks when he will part the eastern skies, the scripture says. And in a single moment, a flash from another world is going to illumine the globe like a lightning flash, Christ says, from the east to the west. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. When he will gather his elect, it says, 
from the four winds. When all the hosts of heaven will come to our rescue visibly, just like they're doing now invisibly. An entire aerial armada will come backed by all the resources of heaven and choreographed from above. And as they come down, they'll never forget the look on our faces because we'll be sobbing and weeping and our chests will be heaving and we'll be saying, thank you, thank you, thank you from the bottom of our hearts. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we will be changed. 1 Corinthians 15, 52. Changed for good into the glory that was forged through the trials, the fires of our tribulations. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. First Thess 4.16, with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and we will meet the Lord in the air, and he'll carry us away. Thus we shall always be with him. Therefore, comfort one another with these words, whatever you're going through. And in the light of these words, as the worship leaders come forward, I would just say this. I would just say this to uh, all you Scott O'Grady's out there, every one of you. I would say, soldiers of Christ, arise. Amen.